So we have been in a conversation now for a couple of weeks. We're really kind of in the middle of it um, about uh, news not advice. And, and what it's about is the idea that uh, increasingly for a lot of people, the church is seen to be a dispenser of advice. The church has has good advice for people about how they could go to heaven when they die or how they could conquer some sort of addiction or how they could get along with difficult people in their life or whatever it is. The church has got good advice. And that idea, there's there's some truth in it, but it would have flabbergasted the people in the early church, people like Peter and Paul and James and John, because what they understood that they were talking about was not good advice. What they thought they were doing is telling people good news. Now, what we what we've been learning over the last couple of weeks is what it means for something to be good news, because it's hard for us to see something that happened 2,000 years ago as good news. But the the criterion that makes something good news is that it's something that it's based on something that has to already have happened. If it's something, if if it's words like this, hey, if you do this, then that's not news. That's advice. But if it says I want to tell you about something that has happened, then that's part of what makes something good news. But it takes more than that. It has to be connected to us. If something happens in Australia this afternoon, if it's not connected with us somehow, it's not good news. It's simply information, and we can file it away or not, depending on whether it applies to us. If it's something that happens out in space or you know in another galaxy, it's not good news. It's just information. It's not good news because it's not related to us it's not newsworthy so for something to be news it has to have, be based on, it has to be relating to an event but the event in turn has to relate to us and then it has to have implications for our future it's got to be something that is good as opposed to bad news so that's what we've been learning about news and what we saw last week is that the the beginning of the good news uh is or really the the summary of the good news is the way Paul put it, as he said um, in 1 Corinthians 15, probably the earliest and certainly the shortest summary of the good news that the early church went around the Mediterranean world telling people. He says, I passed on to you as of first importance what in turn I had received. That, um, that, uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So that's in your bulletin. It's kind of been our theme verse for this series. And the idea is that, or, or verse says, um, and that is really the summary of the message that people would have taken around the Mediterranean world, saying, here's the good news. And what we saw last week is that Christ is this is this church word. We don't use the word Christ outside of a church context um, but what it means is king. And the, the first part of the good news is that they said, hey, I want to tell you, there is there has been a coronation event. There has been somebody who has become a different kind of king, and he rules a different kind of kingdom. So that's what we saw last week. But at that point, we kind of have to stop, because if we're putting ourselves in the in the position of somebody in the ancient world, somebody in the Mediterranean world, a Roman or a Greek, uh, somebody like Peter or Paul shows up in our community and they say, I've got good news. And they say, there's been a coronation a thousand miles away by foot. So even harder than 500 miles. So it's a thousand miles away in a country you don't, you don't live in and will never live in. And that's the place where people in, in their audience would have said, so what? 
And maybe some of you have, have asked that question too. He's like, is this really real? How does this relate to me? And that's where the good news could simply become information. If it doesn't have some sort of a connection to us, then it's just information about something that took place a long time ago or a far, far away place. So what the early church answered was the, was in this same set of verses that Paul talks about. They said, it does connect to you. Even if you're a Roman, even if you're a Greek, and you will never go to Judah, you'll never be a part of Judea, you'll never be a part of that, that culture, but it's still good news for you. And the way they did it was by saying what Jesus did was in accordance with the scriptures. You see that in the in this section of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says that twice in just two verses. He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and uh, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he says, this is part of a bigger thing that's going on. And we can imagine, you know, maybe some of you feel this way, but we can imagine that a Greek or a Roman who heard this would have said, I don't know your holy book. I don't know your scriptures. I don't know how that relates to me. Uh, you haven't, you haven't made your case, Peter. You haven't made your case, Paul. I still don't understand how does this thing relate to me, even if it is in accordance with the scriptures. And they would have said, there's two big themes that run all through the Hebrew scriptures. And they are the themes of creation and the theme of covenant. Creation is the idea that God made the entire world the place where you live. And so it's connected to you because God made your home. God made you because you don't exist outside of creation. He would have said, this is, this is important to you because it has to do with the God of our scriptures who made the world you live in. And it's important to you because God made promises to you. See, in the pagan world, God's lived up on a mountain somewhere and they did their own God thing. That, that, you know, Jupiter or Zeus, they, they did whatever Jupiter, Jupiter and Zeus did. And, and they might come down once in a while and cause some trouble among mortals, but it really wasn't your concern. There was nothing you could do about it. They certainly didn't make promises. And so, uh, the, the, the words to the Roman would have been, there's a God who has made promises to you. First of all, God made the world you live in, and secondly, God has made promises to you. So creation and covenant, the two big ideas of the Hebrew Scriptures. So we're going to look at two two characteristic passages, and we're going to try and do it as briefly as Peter or Paul would have um, if they've got a ready ear in their in their the person they're talking to. So, so the creation story, uh, very familiar. A lot of us have heard it. Some of us heard it in NASA presentations back in 1968 when they read it from the orbit of the moon. So um, they said that God made the, the heavens and the earth. And the key thing to, to jump out at us is God made, God made everything. He made the heavens and the earth. Um, in the pagan world, they would have said the gods rearranged what was already there. Maybe they, they made a little bit of changes. They created a mountain. They dug a valley, whatever it was. But the Hebrew scripture said God made everything. God made the things you look up at and the things all around you. But they also would have said, and God made it very good. The children's version of the, the, the scripture says supremely good. Our, our pew Bible says that it was very good. That God did this survey. Every time he, he made a step or, or, or a new phase of creation, he looked at it and saw that it was good. And then when God looked at the whole creation, God surveyed everything he made 
And he said, indeed, it was very good. Or in the other translation, that it was supremely good. And I think, if, again, if we use our imagination to picture ourselves, that Greek or that Roman who's listening to Peter, he's been patient, he's kind of held on so far, and he goes, all right, you just lost me. Because when I look around, I'm sorry, I don't get it. I don't see that. I see slavery, and I see war, and I see violence, I see oppression. I don't see supremely good. And that's where Peter or Paul would have said, you're right, something went wrong, something happened, and creation is no longer good. But the God that I'm telling you about is committed to make it good again. I'm telling you good news about a God who is determined to set things right, to go through the created order and put right everything that has gone wrong. So that's good news. But again, our, our Greek or our Roman might say, well, why doesn't he just start over? And that's where the theme of covenant comes in. Because, because what Peter or Paul would say is, actually, God tried that once. In fact, the very first covenant that God made was after he did that. Early, 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 when there were only a few people on earth, God sent rains to wipe out everybody who was a sinner and saved only one family. He saved the family of Noah. But as soon as the floods had receded, as soon as Noah and his family got out of the boat, they started sinning again. And so God put his, he put his bow in the clouds as a covenant, not just to Jews, not just to Hebrews, but to all humanity and said, I will never again wipe out all life on earth. That from now on, I'm committed to a different approach to saving the world, to making the world good again. I have a new approach, and it's going to be a lot more costly for me. And it's going to be slower for you. But it's the right approach. So the first covenant that God makes is to say, I'm going to save the world, but I'm also going to save you who live in it. I'm not just going to wipe it all clean and start over again. So the first covenant God makes has to do with how he saves the world. But he goes on from there. He makes more and more promises. When I was, when I was in seminary, or, or after I got out of seminary, I was examined for ordination. And for those of you who will never go through an examination for ordination, I'll tell you, what happens is all the preachers and all the lay leaders in your community, the, the region I lived in was in... Uh, uh, the Riverside Presbytery of Southern California, so about 30 churches worth of preachers and, and lay leaders, uh, I got asked whatever question they felt like to decide whether I was qualified to be a minister, and I fooled them. But one of the questions, one of the questions I was asked uh, was, what are the covenants in the Old Testament? And I stood there and I kind of stumbled around for a while and I came up with two or three, and there's actually like six six of them, depending on how you count. Um, there's, there's six covenants plus a promise of a future new covenant in the Old Testament, and I got through three or four of them. But one of the next covenants we read about in the Old, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, was one that God made to Abraham. And he said, I'm going to give you a land and, and a people. And so God gives them a land and a people. Well, no, actually God doesn't. God makes a promise, but
But instead of giving them a land, he gives Abraham a small family. And, and over the course of a couple of generations, it comes to about 70 people. But there's a famine and they have to go to Egypt. And they're in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, they're taking, they're, they're basically enslaved. And, and they don't have a land. But they do get a people. That 70 people becomes hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but they have no land. They are slaves in Egypt. And that's where our second reading comes in, because God is a God who makes promises. So one day Moses is out tending the flock of his father-in-law Abraham or, uh, Jethro, and he sees the burning bush, and he says, I'm going to go check this out. And when he gets closer, God calls to him and says, Moses, he says, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And God says, come no closer, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So Moses covers his face because he's afraid to look at God. I assume he also takes off his shoes. And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. I am the God who made promises to Abraham. And I haven't finished fulfilling that promise to Abraham. Because I told Abraham I'd give him a land as well as a people. And so far, I've only given him part of what I promised. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. This is an amazing thing for Paul or Peter to tell that to a Greek or to a Roman. There's a God who knows your sufferings, who's paying attention, who knows what you're dealing with, who knows the way that creation is broken for you, not just not just the way it got broken in the abstract, not just for this people long ago who were enslaved, but a God who looks at us, who sees what we're dealing with, and says, creation is still a mess for them. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to do something about it. I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. God is saying the promise is not just an abstract promise to make all creation better, but it's a personal, individual promise to make your creation better, to liberate you from whatever Egypt you are in. He says, therefore, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So Peter, Paul, talks to this Roman, talks to this Greek, says, I've got good news. And the way it connects to you is that I'm telling you about a God who created the world good and who is intimately aware of all the ways it is no longer good. The ways outside of you, the ways that have hurt you, and the ways inside of you, the ways that you have hurt others. And he is committed to make it all right, to fix everything that's broken inside of you and around you. That is the God that connects you to this king I told you about. You know, with a passage like this, when you're talking about good news, there's a challenge. What's the application? You know, I want to give you something to do when you go out of here. So I'll give you something to do the next time you skip church. So... You know, sometimes people people say, you know, I worship God in the mountains. 
I go up to Denali and I see sandhill cranes, right? And what I would encourage you to do is do that. You're going to anyway. I might as well encourage you. Uh, you know, this is, this is Alaska. Uh, you know, there's some great bits of creation here. And I encourage you to go out there, look at the creation that you see, the beautiful things that we can see here in Alaska. And remember that God made the entire world to be good. So when you see those sandhill cranes or you see Denali, whatever it is you're looking at, remember that God's intention is not just for there to be little isolated pockets of good here and there, but the whole world is to be good. Not just not just the mountains and the valleys, the oceans, but the people. The difficult person you have to work with, the difficult person you live with, the difficult person in the mirror. God is committed to make everything good again. So when you're out there enjoying creation, remember that there's a God who's committed to make things better. Don't just look at the creation. Remember the covenant. Because God is making the world better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks not just for the fact that Jesus became king or even that he brings in a new kind of kingdom. But we thank you for the scriptures that witness to your ongoing care for us, that you made this world good and it pains you to see the ways that it is not good now. That you have considered how best to make it right. You have considered us and that you have promised to make us right as well. We pray, Lord, you'd give us patience as we wait out like those, like those Hebrews did 400 years waiting for your promise to be fulfilled to Abraham. Give us patience. Help us to see not only the creation, but to remember your promises. Give us eyes to see the ways you fulfill them. And help us always to remember that your goal is not simply to make the world pretty, but to make us like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.